Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back, episode 36 of Hashing It Out. I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty, and always I'm here with Colin Couchet. Say hello, everybody, Colin. Hello, everybody, Colin. Well played, sir. Uh, our guest today, Stan Robinson, currently working at Paradigm and formerly at Interstellar and Chain. I'm here to talk to us about HTLCs and why they may suck, along with other types of interesting technology that's currently in the pipeline um, for helping scale out a lot of the blockchain systems we're in. Dan, why don't you start by giving us an introduction as to um, who you are and how you got into the space. Sure, yes. Yeah. So um, thanks for having me on. I'm a former securities lawyer, securities litigator from New York who um, is a refugee from that career and quit to become a blockchain protocol researcher. Um, so uh, about uh, two and a half years ago, I started a chain, um, but before that, so before that, I'd been I'd been generally interested in um, in Bitcoin for a few years and Ethereum since the since the initial white paper came out, and I've been sort of following that. And I wanted to work a chain partly in order to work on smart contract languages and um, uh, cryptography and various and various research there. And um, ended up um, the past couple of years, I worked on I had a smart contract language that I worked on a chain called Ivy, which is a smart contract language for Bitcoin. Um, I worked on some um, some of the sort of confident cryptography, but a lot of what I've worked on recently relates to scaling um, and particularly payment channel like and plasma like solutions for scaling. So I've, um, uh, you know, I've been where I worked at uh, when chain got acquired by um, Interstellar, I worked on payment channels on Stellar, um, there's a project called Starlight. And while I was working on that, I got familiar with the people um, uh, working on Interledger, which is a project that was started at Ripple, and got pretty interested in how they were approaching uh, build, uh, constructing a payment network and ways in which it differed from what people sort of the most uh, high-profile payment channel network in the space, which is which is the Lightning Network on Bitcoin, um, and that led me to to really sort of like dive in on, on this particular question, of, uh, a very ultimately pretty technical question about whether to use HTLCs in, um, in these networks. And that was, and so I recently gave a talk and I've been going around just evangelizing against the use of HTLCs, which is a solution used by Lightning in favor of the, of um, uh, this, this different approach, which Interledger takes, which I'm happy to talk about. Anyway, so then um, that was while I was at Interstellar. And then recently, um, about two weeks ago, I started as a research partner at Paradigm, which is an investment firm focused on cryptocurrencies. And uh, I've been working just sort of in research, doing technical due diligence and sourcing on investments and just trying to keep up and follow the space and uh, 
help us try to figure out which way it's going and what the next big thing is. So first off, I want to say that you were one of my top choices for first guests after SPC. I was there. I saw you talk. Um, it was great. You were passionate. You're very uh, vocal. Great job on that talk. Uh, you, you. you really engaged the entire audience and there was tons of questions afterwards uh, that, that, that were very insightful that uh, people had, but it was, it was overall a very good talk. Um, and it was funny because you actually had two, um, two, I believe, talks on HTLCs right before yours. And it was like, that's right. HTLC, HTLC. And then it was like, why HTLC suck? <laughs> <laughs> That's literally the title. And I'm like, I see that title and I, I, I knew it was on my program, but I didn't like register with me that it was going on. And I just kind of like busted out laughing. I'm like, That's bold. So yeah, so our, we have not had a whole lot of discussion. We talk about atomic swaps, like in a very generalistic sense on this program mm -hmm. in the past. We've never really gotten into the guts of it um, and the implementations behind it. Um, uh, you know, not just single atomic swaps, multi-hop and that kind of thing. So I think uh, it's really important for our audience to get a sort of uh, primer on uh, what HTLCs are um, and uh, what what uh, what what they enable, and then kind of lead into uh, some of the you know your knowledge of the, some of the implementations that are out there and why they suck. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So HTLCs are a construction that's um, I think have been around for maybe a little over five years. Um, and they were originally designed to support atomic cross-chain swaps. So it's a way that you can do the canonical example is, is if someone's trading Bitcoin for Litecoin. Um, I can send Bitcoin to someone and have them send Litecoin to me and we can structure it in such a way that my transaction will only go through if theirs does. So I'll only send the Bitcoin if um, I'm also receiving Litecoin. Um, and then those, both those transactions succeed. And it's it's a it's a powerful construction, and it's it's one that generally supports multi you know uh, uh, cross ledger atomic transactions, even if those ledgers aren't um, aren't public blockchain. So one so the way that they are used in the Lightning Network um, and in other payment channel networks is that they support um, atomic transactions where each of the ledgers are payment channels and a payment channel by the way i have nothing against payment channels i think payment channels are fantastic um and it's it's important to note that the lightning network and these other um sort of solutions are really two technologies um that are sort of composed into one and one of those is payment channels which provide these off-chain bilateral ledgers and the other is hclcs to provide cross-ledger atomic transactions so hclcs are what allow multi-hop transactions on the lightning network um because the uh you, if, if you've got, for example, a payment from Alice to Bob, um, and they have, a, they have a payment channel with each other, and you also have a payment channel between Bob and Charlie, um, then if Alice wants to pay Charlie, she has to pay Bob, but only in such a way that it only goes through if Bob's payment to Charlie on their payment channel goes through. And that's how Lightning pro uh, provides um, multi-hop payments. And so they use, they use HTLCs to do this, but what I argue um, in the talk and what I've been sort of just like shouting into the face of everybody in the industry that I meet for the past um, eight months or so is that there's an, there's an easier way to do it that doesn't have some of the downsides that HTLCs have. So let's get into what H how HTLCs work. Our audience is targeted towards engineers. Um, so get, get as dirty and in the weeds as you want. Um, how, how exactly do these work and how could somebody build like a small model of an HTLC in their, you know, on their GitHub account and just play with it themselves? Sure. So at heart, um, 
And HTLC is part of a, of a two-phase commit protocol um, that sort of resembles ones that you'd, that you'd use um, in other areas of engineering. Uh, and so the, the, the phases of, a, of doing an HTLC, um, an HTLC-based Thomas transaction, is that actually you have two HTLCs, one on, let's, let's do a Bitcoin, uh, cross-Bitcoin, Litecoin trade, um, so you create one HLC on the Bitcoin network and one on the Lightning network, and then you complete them atomically. So the HLC is a contract that locks up these funds in such a way that um, uh, it can be unlocked if and only if it's, uh, the corresponding HLC on the other chain is unlocked. And so the way you do that is, let's suppose um, you've got Alice. Alice has Bitcoin and Bob has Litecoin. Um, actually, usually, usually I use Charlie as the one who has Litecoin because, as we all know, <laughs> Charlie Lee dumped all his Litecoin spectacularly at the top of the market last year. So we'll say Alice is trading her, her Bitcoin to Charlie, and Charlie is, is trading, dumping all his Litecoin on um, on Alice. So um, what happens first is Alice creates an HTLC with the Bitcoin that she wants to to send, and what an HLC looks like on the Bitcoin network is actually just a Bitcoin address. So if you go to, if you, you can actually use Ivy, which is the um, Bitcoin smart contract language um, that I helped develop a chain. Um, if you go to ivy-lang.org, um, you can actually try the Ivy playground there and you can actually see what a lot of these contracts look like, including what an HLC looks like. Um, an HLC, it's, it's a, what a Bitcoin smart contract looks like is just a, it's just an address. It's an address that can, that can be spent from in um, one or more ways. And an HLC is an address that can be, that can be either um, satisfied by one party, the recipient, by providing a hash, or it can be retrieved by the sender, um, which is another public key, um, uh, after a certain amount of time. So it's either the recipient plus this, so I'm sorry, this hash pre-image, so, so a pre-image secret that corresponds to a hash, or the sender can get it back after a certain amount of time. Um, and so Alice locks up her um, Bitcoin on the Bitcoin network into, a, uh, into an HTLC where she's the sender, Bob is the recipient. Um, this secret that only, uh, right now, only she knows is... I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, the secret right now only she knows is uh, is the uh, she hashes that and then she makes that the hash in the um, in the HLC and there's some timeout. So let's make it 48 hours. Um, so she'll be able to get this back after 48 hours, or um, Bob will be able to get it after. I'm sorry, Charlie will be able to get it after um, by by providing this hash preimage. Okay. So now Charlie sees that this happens on the Bitcoin network. Now Charlie doesn't know the preimage, so he ha in order to, to get it, he has to set up the other side of the trade for Alice. So he creates an HTLC on the Litecoin network where he dumps all his Litecoin into it. Um, there, he's the sender. Charlie's the sender. Alice is the recipient. Um, the timeout is 24 hours, so it's a shorter timeout. Um, and the same hash is used to lock it. So this one can be unlocked by Alice by providing the secret. Now, Alice knows this secret. So now that she sees that Bob creates this, she can go to the Litecoin network, use her pre-image um, and, her, and her public key to unlock this HTLC, and she gets all the Litecoin. In so doing, she reveals the secret, um, the, the pre-image, um, that is needed to unlock the other, uh, the other transactions, so the, the, the HTLC over on the um, Bitcoin network. So Charlie can go to the Bitcoin network, collect um, the Bitcoin by, by showing this, this uh, secret that he's just learned, um, and he has until the end of that 48 
hour period to do it. And the reason these timeouts are staggered is that Alice might wait till the very last minute to actually use her secret to claim the, uh, um, the Litecoin. And we need to give enough time for Charlie to then go use that and uh, collect the Bitcoin uh, before that one times out. And finally, the reason that there's timeouts on this is that is so that if one of the parties just disappears, the other one won't be stuck. Um, you know, they won't lose their money. They'll eventually be able to withdraw it um, and cancel the HLC. So that's needed um, just for so, so it's a secure protocol. But yeah, so that's that's how it works when the two parties are trading on public blockchains. Um, and it's a similar principle. I don't go into this too much in the talk because it gets a little complicated. But um, if you have this in a, in a payment channel, you do something you do something similar with both the with both the parties. And they essentially create a payment channel inside the HCLC as one of the, and so, you know, in a payment channel, Alice can have a balance, Bob can have a balance, and then you can just have the HCLC has a balance. So if you exit the payment channel at, the, at some particular time, um, the HCLC ends up with part of that money. And then if there's a problem, they can exit the whole payment channel to the main chain and then settle the HCLC just like they would if it was done on the main chain in the first place. So that's, you know, in, in a very brief, I'm not going to explain really how payment channels work because that's its own discussion, but, um, uh, that's that's how HLCs work as just sort of a abs- general abstract idea for cross ledger atomic transactions. All right, so I'd like to stop real quick. Um, <clears throat> and your talk also went into this quite in detail with pictures, which may, helps quite a bit. It's always fun to try and explain mm. these things completely verbally. Uh, so if you have no idea what the hell was just said and um, you want to know more, I recommend you go to the show notes and watch his talk. Uh, so that way you can kind of be up to date on. Um, where we go from here and and you don't get lost in the weeds along the way yeah and we can we can put the slides there too as well yeah sure that sounds great and the transcripts yep all right so what's the problem with that oh what's the problem with hclc's yes. yeah so where should i start um the three problems that i go over in the talk um and i think these are sort of the major ones are that there's this liquidity denial of service attack or this griefing problem. Um, and that's the one that I think is the most serious. There's a free option problem. Um, and that's particularly when you have this, uh, this trade going across multiple currencies as we did with the Bitcoin Litecoin trade. Um, and there's just sort of an inherent complexity and difficulty of implementation. Uh, so I'll start actually with the free option problem. Um, and this one recently got as has sort of gone mainstream. Um, and there was a post on uh, lightning on the lightning dev uh, Group about it, um, and I think I think people people have mostly acknowledged that this is a problem with uh, multi-currency lightning. So uh, the problem here is that remember we had this timeout of 24 hours for Alice to claim the Litecoin um, in this example. Now, uh, the Alice, so we have to have this timeout be be relatively long because otherwise, if this if this times out too early, Charlie Charlie could potentially get both. Um, of the, uh, if you know, like Alice tries to reveal this but doesn't get it included, for example, um, Charlie could potentially claim both of the, uh, cancel his agency and yeah, and, and claim the other one. So you need to have these timeouts be relatively long. But the problem there is, um, if uh, if they're long, you know, th- this gives Alice this choice to just wait until the very last second, wait 23 hours and 50 minutes. Um, and decide whether to complete the whole trade or cancel the whole trade. And she could make that decision based in part on whether the price of Bitcoin and Litecoin has moved in that time period. So if the trade has become more advantageous for her, she might uh, 
you know, complete the trade. But if it's gone against her, she might cancel it. And so this is what's known in finance as an option um, in that there's, there's real value for her from having this time period that she can wait, watch the price move back and forth and decide actually whether to complete this trade. And that's not necessarily necessarily something that Charlie um, wanted to actually agree to. He wasn't, he wasn't giving her, he wasn't trying to give her an option. He was just trying to do a trade. And so because of this, uh, of the long time it takes for HLCs to settle, um, this can be, this can be sort of a problem for that. And it means, it means ultimately it'd be hard to do an economical trade there where you wouldn't be able to, where your partner, where your counterparty wouldn't be able to take advantage of you and take advantage of that free option there. Um, this is even worse, actually, and I ain't going to do this yet in the talk, but this is even worse if you have the money in a payment channel because the payment channel adds its own settlement delay to this. So it would have to be something like two days or even more um, that you'd have to choose whether the uh, Alice would have to choose whether to complete or not. And so that can a lot of people think it's it's, real, it's pretty fatal for at least a at least a very um, uh, you know well developed multi. Uh, multi-asset lightning network. Um, you know, again, you can imagine people just sort of eating these costs, or you could imagine this reputation system kind of taking care of it. Uh, but to really have it be very robust, um, it's very hard to do this using HLCs. Yeah, you'd like the base layer to be as generalized as possible, as trustless as possible, but didn't have these types of mm -hmm. uh, kind of ways to gain the system. Yep. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so that's, you know, that's, that's the free option problem. But people... I've pointed out quite rightly that this isn't really much of a problem with uh, a Lightning Network trade that's entirely on the Bitcoin network because, um, yes, someone can wait to the last second, but why would be their incentive to? Um, and they don't actually get an economic advantage because it's all being settled in Bitcoin. Both sides of the trade are Bitcoin. Um, so, again, that's, that's where one of the sides of the quote-unquote trade is Alice sending to Bob and the other side is Bob sending to Charlie. And so um, there you don't have a free option problem, but that's when we get into uh, – the other problem, the one that I consider more serious, which is this griefing problem. And that's a way for somebody to potentially just denial of service attack um, a huge portion of the Lightning Network using relatively little capital. So it's almost exactly the same as, as what I just described, but the, the motivation here is different. So when Alice uh, decides, if Alice waits just the whole period and either doesn't reveal the uh, her pre-image at all or... Um, uh, wait till the very last minute and only reveals it at the very last minute. Um, Charlie had, now has his money stuck in this, uh, in this, you know, his, this HLC. He's not able to get it out um, until she actually completes it. And so that's, so he just got it stuck for 24 hours. And this might, you know, this might be, this is sort of annoying, but I guess Charlie, you know, may end up for this trade. But suppose this was a multi-hop lightning uh, network payment. You can do this on Lightning, and this is, you know, sort of the whole idea of Lightning, is it's possible to do these multi-hop payments where, you know, maybe it goes, maybe uh, take a realistic example. Suppose Alice is an account at Coinbase and um, Bob is an account at Kraken, and uh, rather than having, it, having you know, uh, they don't have the channels uh, directly with each other, or even directly with, with the same intermediary, instead uh, Alice makes a, makes a payment, it hops to Coinbase, to Kraken, uh, and then to Bob. So if Bob doesn't reveal his pre-image, um, for the whole 24 hours, um, that first 24 hours, if he has it, that means that not only is Alice's money locked up for that period, but there is a portion of the channel between Coinbase and Kraken. Um, like if, if it's one Bitcoin being sent, then just Coinbase and Kraken just can't use that Bitcoin for the for that entire 24 hours. And this is, you know, this is Lightning Network liquidity. It's not very cheap, um, at least as of yet. There is there isn't, you know, sort of a, a huge supply of it. And someone can for free, um, you know, uh, Charlie Bob. 
I'm sorry, was that an example? Yeah, Bob doesn't even pay to do this attack. They can just sort of grief the whole network by not completing this, uh, this payment and just the money's locked up in these channels all along the path. And here, that was just like a three-hop payment. Suppose it was a 20-hop payment. They've locked up 20 times the amount of, of Bitcoin that they, had to, that they had to be locked up, have locked up for a day. And so they've just locked up this one Bitcoin in 20 different places along the entire path. And so you can really potentially cripple the network um, by doing an attack like this, by just by sort of locking up all the liquidity on a, on a payment that doesn't even complete. What's important about that aspect is that it's basically free to do so. It's not like the, the, the attacker doesn't pay anything at a cost of doing that because people would kind of argue that it's not spam if it if it's paid for. That same argument that Bitcoin right. uses quite often. Right, exactly. And so in the, in this case, yeah, because Lightning doesn't charge any fee if the payment doesn't complete. Um, and it would be very difficult actually to make that kind of, to make charging a fee there work because you just essentially have to have to charge a fee um, unconditionally even for payments that don't find a path. Uh, or you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little subtle than that, but it's, it's hard to it's hard to actually make the attacker pay in this case. Um, certainly, without making other people end up having to pay as well. Um, so yeah, so this is this is something that someone just you know, like Craig Wright or something, somebody with a grudge against the Lightning Network um, could do uh, potentially in order to to really make it difficult for any of anyone to um, any intermediaries to operate on it. Now, just to be clear, for the the griefing problem, you need to have a mm -hmm. uh, relatively equal amount of capital. You also have to have somebody on the other side who actually decides to exchange with you. Um, so um, this could possibly be mitigated by social constructs rather than just simple, um, you know, than, than rather than crypto, you know, just using protocol layer stuff. And, yes. Um, yeah. If people choose not to engage with you because you're doing this kind of stuff um then you know then that's uh that's something you can implement but in an anonymous system that's very difficult to maintain um and uh it could also cause other sort of gaming problems so reputation systems aren't kind of sufficient if we're trying to build something very generic and global um that's i just right. want to point so, that so, out really quick yeah absolutely and so it, it it's true you, you could you could try to do a reputation system here what makes that difficult in addition to the fact that it would be nice if we had a network that didn't require um, everybody to be to be known to everybody else. Um, what makes it additionally difficult? It isn't just your immediate counterparty that can do this attack on you. If you route a payment and you're in just the middle of like a twenty hop payment, and the end recipient is a malicious counterparty or just somebody who, who you know just goes offline, forgets to complete whatever, um, you don't even know them. You're just routing a payment to them, or maybe somebody like halfway down the down the um, payment path does this. That that will still affect you. That still ends up giving you for a long time. Um, you don't you know you don't know this party. They're not your immediate counterparty, but you're still exposed to them. So you really have to learn not only about your the people you open channels with, but everybody along the path of every payment that you route, you're exposed to this attack from. Um, so it's 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 not it's not a kind of local trust. It's a very it, it requires this kind of global. Um, global trust and global reputation system that I think is very is uh, largely incompatible with maybe what we'd like a payment channel network to be structured like, or any decentralized network. I mean, it's 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 actually incompatible in general with the philosophy behind what we're building, and that we shouldn't we shouldn't depend on reputation to be trustless. Like that's that's the opposite of of a decentralized you know a trustless network. Um, it's it's exactly building trust into the network and. You know, uh, you, you then you get questions of redemption and just you know, what if something f's up? Like, how do you, how do you like rectify your bad karma as a result of that? You know, um, yeah. so it, it's just not what it's antithetical to what we're trying to build here. 
We want to build a robust protocol, and robust protocols do not depend on karma. Yeah, but so I, I could I could probably argue that this is the consequence of an early implementation of something that will potentially become better. And, it, and there's a few things that I could think as optimizations that would help not get rid of this problem, but minimize it. One would be like routing optimization. So like maybe enforcing something is less than like you know, optimizing the route based on cost and, and number of hops. So that way you minimize mm -hmm. the, amount, the amount that someone could grief in that circumstance. Like 20 hops is a bit ridiculous in any well-connected network. And also you could do something like, a, I don't know what they call it, lightning network, but basically you can break up payments and route over multiple routes. Um, so you can you can I, not have everything yeah, go through the same but, channel. But hold on, the other thing is like you don't need multiple hops in order to have this problem. In that, if you want to attack Coinbase, True. I'm just saying it, it mitigates it. It it, it minimizes right. the amount someone can grief. It doesn't get rid of the problem whatsoever. It just it, it 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 lowers the potential for someone to do massive harm or as much harm based on the same amount of funds. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I think I think I think I'm also very glad you brought up the the point of, of breaking up a payment um, into into small pieces because that's that's what I'm about to get to about the interledger approach. Um, but I also want to address uh, when you mentioned trust. You know, I think I think it's okay in some cases for the system to use a small amount of trust um, to its to its advantage, and you can actually get a lot more power. As I'm again, also going to talk about with interledger. If you do take into account the small ways in which, for example, immediate channel counterparties already have to trust each other. Um, but the idea of sort of global trust or one party that we all have to trust um, or everybody having to know every part of the system, I think that uh, is, a, you know, is a really sort of poor feature for a system to have. Um, so, yeah, so, again, I, I think and I'll, I'll, when I get to when I explain how the interledger protocols method of, of atomic payments um, works, I think I'll, I'll try to explain how, you know, it. You can see in some ways that it uses trust, and um, but I think in ways that uh, that are very that are very much don't lead to the to bad consequences of trying to do it in this kind of global reputation way that it might be needed to solve HL, the HLC problem. So yeah, so I think that that's that's the that's the liquidity denial of service attack or the griefing attack. Um, there's one more one more area which is uh, complexity, and so embedding I mentioned before embedding payment channels and I'm sorry HCLCs inside of payment channels is kind of difficult. It's kind of complicated. It's relatively difficult to implement. Um, HCLCs put some requirements on the base ledger, like that it has to support hash locks, has to support time locks. If you've crossed ledger um, HCLCs, like like um, and payment channels that you know that, that try to cross from uh, one ledger to another, those both have to support the same hash function. Um, they have to have relatively in sync timers and uh, clocks. Um, the requirements, it turns out to be actually relatively relatively difficult to try to implement the lightning network as it exists um, because the, the the specification of it is very Bitcoin specific and it really involves literally just the structure of these Bitcoin transactions that embed these HLCs. Um, it's very hard to build something um, uh, on a different cur currency that's compatible with it. And, you know, I've tried um, on Stellar and I think I found actually that's, that's one more area where I found Interledger to actually be much easier to figure out how to use it on, on different substrates. So, yeah, so I can, um, if you've any, uh, be happy to talk more about the downside to HCLCs, or we can go, you know, straight to Damascus and talk about um, about what I think potentially is the solution. Let's move to the solution. I'm kind of curious as to what, like, how you think you could you could mitigate this by getting rid of HCLCs or even using yep. them differently. Yep, great. So it's um, it turns out I I, I I love this protocol. I, this is not my idea. This came from 
um, Evan Schwartz and Stefan Thomas uh, at Ripple, who were the inventors of the Interledger Protocol. And the Interledger Protocol originally had HLCs, but when they came up with this alternative idea, they realized uh, that it was that it was a lot easier and um, and didn't have these downsides, and so they switched Interledger to using that. Um, so uh, the basic way it works, and this is I usually pose it up in the form of a riddle. So if I want to send send you a dollar and have you send me a euro, let's and let's ignore um, let's ignore our exchange rate right now. Uh, but suppose suppose I want we want to do that trade, but I want to do it in a way where you can't cheat me and I can't cheat you. Um, so there's a problem if one part, person goes first, the other person might not complete the trade. Um, so how would you how would you do it? So. I mean, I, I I hate to give away the answer, but at least what you're going to, and that is what you <laughs> yep. what I said earlier, is break it up. That's right. Yep. So how would that work? Uh, I would basically break my payment into, we'll just say 100 payments. So that's going to be, you know, one, mm-hmm. one cent per dollar and send you that. Wait, and then await you to do the same thing for me and then go back and forth until we complete basically the streamed payment to each other atomically. Yep, that's that's exactly right. And so you, it's it kind of actually has a lot in common with the game theory um, concept of tit for tat because um, it's this, this turns us into a repeated game where if at any point um, I try to cheat you by not sending you my penny, you just don't send me the next penny. And at worst, um, this uh, me playing this game has cost me one penny. Um, uh, so that's 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 the that's the essential core idea of it. And that's instead of having this big trade that we try to complete as a blob. Um, uh, atomically with some other trade. We just split it up into tiny payments and send it a little bit at a time. And what I love most about this, I think, I think the, it, it definitely, it very much mitigates the uh, liquidity denial of service and the free option problems. But what I love most about it is the simplicity because you can do this on any payment medium that supports cheap payments. Um, you can do it, you could do it with, um, you could do it on on-chain, you can do it in payment channels, you can do it um, on Venmo, you can do it with bank wire transfers. You can do it by throwing pennies across the Grand Canyon. Anything where I can just make tiny payments to you, and you can make tiny payment, uh, payments back to me, um, can potentially support this protocol. And so this is—it's it's similar to the way in which, like, TCP can be done over IP, or can be done using um, like homing pigeons or carrier <laughs> pigeons. It's—it's uh, yeah. it's, uh, agnostic to the to sort of the details of the lower protocol. Um, and so that's 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 one of my favorite things about about Interledger, um, and this and this particular approach. And the uh, the of course it also it also like I said addresses the free option problem because if you have a free option, it's only for a very um, small amount of of time and and for a very small amount. Um, and you can steal a little from your counterparty, but we make the payment so small that you can you can limit it arbitrarily small. You can make it one satoshi at a time. Um, and you just sort of limit it to make sure that it's uh, within the amount that you're economically willing to lose from your um, f- from this particular counterparty that you have betraying you. And this, this protocol, by the way, is set up so it's not that anyone along the chain of payments, if you have a multi-op payment, can steal from you. It's only your immediate counterparty, um, and it's detectable to you. You know that they that they were the one who uh, st- who cheated you in this case, so you can just close your channel with them. Um, and finally, yes, there's a there's a it solves the liquidity denial of service problem because. These payments, uh, the tiny payments, uh, yeah, they, they, they don't lock up capital really at all um, or, or when they do only a tiny amount along this path um, and only for a very short amount of time. Because the thing is, and again, the thing about the reason that these timeouts on the um, HGL, our ledger-enforced HGLCs were so long 
is that they need to be settled on the main chain. And so you need to wait for the payment channel to settle the main chain, chain and then you need to wait for this party to be able to close that, uh, to complete that, um, that HCLC. And when you're not settling, when you're not, when these are just sort of informal agreements, essentially, these, these higher level agreements um, to complete these payments, nothing's getting enforced on the ledger. And so you don't have these, have these, uh, have, you're not sort of like bound by the, the uh, time that it takes to actually settle this. So, yeah, I think that, that's, that's it in a nutshell. There's a lot more details, like I said in the presentation. I mean, Interledger is a really big thing, it's, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a really cool project. And I'm just focused on a very tiny mechanism of it that I just find incredibly beautiful. I think, I, I think I'm, I'm a bigger fan of this bit than even, um, even the people at Interledger. Um, and okay. this is like the one that I obsess about. That, like the, the student that, payments. What method. you're talking about here is quite a broad idea and could be used yeah. on like, almost all current chains that are in production right now. Not only not only every every chain, um, and especially chains that provide protocols. But I I've actually just thought of uh, there's just a lot of different of different protocols, even not blockchain, not even you know money yeah. protocols that can kind of take advantage of this insight. And this is something I think this this, this predates you know this, this, it's an older idea, but it was one that I found as a result of looking into this. Um, there's protocols for cha- for exchanging information. If I want to give you a private key and you and in exchange for you giving me a private key, um, there's no way to do that atomically. Um, like with, you know, you couldn't do that with like an HTLC like protocol. So what the way that the sort of interledger way to do it is I give you one bit and prove that it's a particular bit of my public, private key, um, corresponding to a particular public key. And then you give me one bit, like I mean, by a bit, I mean, literally a zero or one. And we do this over and over. And if either part, party aborts at any point, um, the, uh, then the other party only, we know that, we know that the other party has the. The, at most, the dishonest party has one bit advantage in brute forcing the rest of it. Um, and so again, that's it's a bit of a tangent, but yeah, I really but that's, like that's, this, that's definitely this dependent upon the atomicity protocol. of the transfer. Uh, you need to be able, like you right. said, that proof involved in doing something like that for general information has to be pretty robust and, and, and efficient. Like it's nice that's about true. for payments because like, every payment is a, it's, is itself just a, a self enclosed payment. That's true. That, that that and that is true. Um, but I think there's there's other areas. I mean, there's there's interesting. Analogies to this too, where you can do prob- different things with probabilistic payments. Anyway, but yes, I think I think it is a it is a very robust um, mechanism. This is this particular design idea, and yeah, I just happen to be a big fan of it. All right, uh, so for for the fudsters out there that may be listening to this and say Lightning's dead, um, is this a problem with <laughs> Lightning at its core, or is it something that can basically just implement this on top of uh, its its current routing framework, or, or HTLC is a fundamental aspect of how Lightning will and can possibly work? Right. So first of all, I want to say that you know I'm I'm a big fan of, of Lightning, and I think I think ultimately the network's going to work out, um, possibly quite possibly by by adopting some ideas from this. Um, but I, I think you know, and, and I think a lot of people's doubts about Lightning Network are doubts generally about the about the possibility of payment channel networks. And at least I would like to be hopeful about payment channel networks in general because I think it's a it's a really cool uh, design for scaling. Um, as the question about whether HLCs are fundamental to Lightning, no. And in fact. Um, Something that not a lot of people know is that when you make a really small payment on Lightning, it's already doing basically this. Um, if I make a one Satoshi payment on Lightning, it just wouldn't be economical to put that in, a, in an HTLC um, and try to settle it on the main chain because HTLCs, I mean, uh, it would be below the dust limit for an output on the, on the chain. And just the, the cost of uh, adding that extra weight to that transaction, um, so you take multiple transactions to settle an HTLC, um, I did the math. It's, it's something like fifty cents is the is the 
um, point below which, and you know, that depends on a lot of factors, but it's around 50 cents at the point below which um, you basically economically can't settle an HTLC on chain. Um, and so payments smaller than, it depends on your lightning node configuration, but payments smaller than, than around that amount are just done almost exactly the way that I described, um, in the sense that it's done, uh, uh, you just sort of basically make the payment but um, you, you still sort of have this coordination among the, among the whole the, uh, parties in the route. And so they still use an HTLC at a higher layer. And this, in fact, is also what Interledger does in order to, um, to kind of coordinate these parties along the, the route. But um, it's, not, it's not enforceable by the main chain. And ultimately, your counterparty can steal 40 cents from you um, if they cheat you while you're, while you're doing this kind of thing. And so one way, I mean, if this turns out to be a huge problem in Lightning, there's actually a relatively easy way to, to um, mitigate it, which is just to, to do to split payments up into these small amounts and just send them. And that can be done at a higher layer. That can be done, um, you know, sort of I guess at the, I guess what we call the transport layer, maybe, um, where uh, yeah, they'd be they they would be able to keep most of the architecture of the Lightning Network and um, but just sort of change the way that they send payments. Um, I do think I mean there's, there's there's some other things about the way that the network is designed that I think are suboptimal for this kind of payment network, but um, I think it's something that it could definitely evolve toward that if this turns out to be a big problem for them. So what about, uh, <clears throat> what if I put out a bunch of like $5 transactions and I nickel and dime the last 40 cents of each transaction. Um, and I do this in bulk using your system. Um, wouldn't that be a way for me to sort of acquire a bunch of funds that I shouldn't acquire? Um, and, uh, you know, how would you mitigate that particular problem? Right. But the way the protocol works is that the, uh, for multi-hop, and I didn't get exactly into the details of how the multi-hop protocol works, but you can check out um, uh, at interledger.org. You can look at their spec and see and sort of learn more about it. Um, the way it works uh, ensures that the only party that you can steal from is your immediate party, the person that you have a payment channel with. Um, and if you do that, it's detectable by that counterparty. And so as soon as they notice you steal some amount from any payment, they can close your, their channel with you and, and you've, you're sort of done doing business with them. Um, and so, yes, you can exit scam your channel counterparty in this way, uh, but it's not, it's not really likely to be a very profitable thing for you. And in fact, the way Lightning does it, and this, this is a possible um, way to, to, to do these things, is instead of, instead of while a payment is pending um, having it be held by the sender. You can, um, and again, I, I know that the details here, the details here get a little um, uh, complicated, but you can structure it in such a way that um, instead of me being able to steal from you, it's just that either is able to grief the other. So this payment, rather than while it's in transit, rather than being held by one of us that can steal from the other, it goes into the minor fees. Um, and so that's what Lightning actually does. So there's no way to actually profit from this. It's just that you can sort of cause the other party to lose a little more. Um, so that's, that's one trade-off. That's one potential, potential way you could choose it. But yeah, the, the basic idea here is that there's, there isn't, um, there wouldn't be really a way for somebody to make a lot of money from doing this. But even if they don't make money, if they make money by closing off a competitor. So let's just say somebody wants to throw up a competitor, mm -hmm. say Coinbase. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this is where the social aspect of the world being not all crypto comes into play. Um, and you want to attack Coinbase, uh, you can mm -hmm. send a bunch of $5 transactions to Coinbase through, or, you know, whatever, uh, not, let's just say Kraken, that's probably a better example. Mm -hmm. um, you, could, you could 
interact with Kraken in, in some way that's that's malicious. Uh, they could decide no longer to interact with you personally, but you just mm -hmm. open up another anonymous account and keep doing it. And you're attacking your competitor. Now, I, I believe that is a little harder in these, these particular situations due to the social aspects also having barriers to entry. Um, mm -hmm. But it does prevent sort of like an open platform for that kind of stuff to proliferate right. without that kind of thing. Right. Well, so the the um, this is actually already a problem, in some sense a problem, um, in Lightning is that one of the parties, the funder of the channel, has to pay fees when they open a channel. Um, someone has to has to, has to fund the uh, the transactions that close the channel. Um, they've sort of put enough money in there that that those fees can be taken out. Um, and the way it works, you know, in general, is that the party that's funding the channel, the one that's taking the risk and and paying the cost, is the one that is less trusted. Um, so the one that's maybe anonymous. And so you'd imagine, now you can imagine the same would probably be true in a network powered by Interledger is that when you have these, these um, tiny payments, one of the parties has to go first, right? One of the parties bears the, weight, the, the, the risk of the other party cheating. And if it's Coinbase versus, you know, like anonymous 555 Reddit 4, um, just some, some anonymous user uh, in this channel, then most likely you'd say it's probably let's, let's have the user be the one to to bear the risk of Coinbase deciding to exit scam them. So you wouldn't be able to just create a bunch of channels with with um, some party and, and steal tiny bits from them or grief them for a little bit, because they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't open they wouldn't when they open a channel with you you're going to be the one funding it and you'd be the one um, who would have to sort of have the risk of uh, of them cheating you. So you imagine, like in, mo in most channels, one of the parties is going to be the more well-known one, the more the more trustworthy one, and the other one maybe even pseudonymously well-known, and the other one is maybe the is maybe sort of the newcomer, and you want the newcomer to be the one who ultimately pays any risks if the channel goes bad. Yeah, but we would definitely have to solve that problem on a more peer-to-peer -peer basis if we're going to create sort of like the global exchange network we're kind of idealizing at this point. Is what I'm trying to get at. That's that's possibly true. I, I think. I mean, I, I think it may well. Um, uh, it may it's, it would already be a great improvement if we have them where all you have is local trust, where all you have is you know I happen to to trust this person because I follow them on Twitter or something like that. Um, I'm willing to bet that they're not going to steal a dollar from me, so I'm so I'm willing to open a channel with them. Um, and so the you know again I think there's there's a lot of other centralizing forces in um, in Lightning. I think we we want to really want to design the system to avoid that, and that's a lot of what of my concern about the liquidity denial service attack. But um, I think ultimately, you know, you have to have some trust with your channel counterparty anyway. You have to have the trust because the channel costs some money to open, so you're spending some money to open it and to close it. Um, and so I think, so I think adding this doesn't really materially change it. I think in many cases, your channel channel counterparty, you might be willing to trust them for a much larger amount of money. So what did you? Again, there, was a, there was a really intriguing question at the end of uh, at the end of your talk at SBC. Hmm. Um, it was about uh, ramping up the payment mechanism so that it exponentially yeah, sure. grows. Um, what were your thoughts on that after that after that comment? And I do see it as possibly a mechanism for mitigating some of these issues we're talking about about the fractional payments and stuff like that. Right. So the so the big the big issue with fractional payments um, with, with with these with the streaming payments, the packetized payment method is that the payments packets if the packets are small and the payment will take a large payment will take a, a long amount of time. Um, and so the uh, you know the the problem if you're trying to send you know you. Do some estimate like you can maybe do 10 payments a second or 20 payments a second um, at most and so if, if you're only doing um 50 cents that's about ten dollars a second in throughput on this uh, uh that you can send through this through this particular channel um 
one way to so one of my one of my answers to that is just that I think sending extremely large payments on a payment channel network may not be a good idea. You might as well just go to the main chain for it. I feel like um, that's the whole because, reason you would just go to the main chain. You have options. Use yeah. Them. Yep. I, I, I think that I think that's right. I think really like the killer use case for payment channel networks is is mostly for smaller payments. Um, another point that I make is that I think if you have a uh, if you have, if you have a much larger payment, sometimes maybe it is find a way to a uh, few seconds for that. Um, but another is yeah. So I, I I think this was this was a great point that David Boric raised in the um at the uh, after the talk was that um if you have a long running relationship a long running channel um where you've made a lot of payments over this channel and you've paid a lot of fees over it you can um raise the willingness your willingness to to lose to the other party to be by some fraction of the fees that they've paid you right so if you uh or that or of the value that you've gotten from the channel. So the, if you imagine that, you know, like, like initially I only trust somebody for 50 cents, but then we, they've sent thousands of dollars through the channel and um, paid, you know, paid like, like you know, tens of dollars of fees to me. If then later they, they grief me, for, they steal a dollar from me um, it's, I, and I close the channel. Ultimately, I've only lost a small percentage of the lifetime value I got from that channel. So over time, you develop this kind of just per channel reputation. Um, and that allows you to slowly raise this, uh, the, the, this, um, bandwidth, we'll call it. Yeah, yeah, that's money exactly. bandwidth. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, and what's, uh, what's interesting is, you know, I said, I say slowly there, but this is, it is actually, if you're charging a, per, a percentage, um, of each, of each payment that goes through, uh, as fees. And, um, if you will, if you're saying I'm willing to cap it at like, I don't know, you know, 5% of the total fees that I've received over this, some percentage of the fees that I've received over the whole course of this channel, um, that works out to it actually being exponential growth in this in this uh, bandwidth. So um, you know the the over time you eventually the the um, this bandwidth can get relative, can get pretty high just the amount that you're willing to have in flight. Even if you you're only saying I'm charging five percent fees on payments that, or you know one percent fees and payments that go through and I'm only willing to lose five percent of the lifetime fees that I've collected on this. Um, it's still that's still exponential growth and still can get pretty high. Yeah, and still, once again, like that in, con- in conjunction with if you're going to do large amounts of payments or uh, like large value payments in a small amount of time, just use the main chain. That's right. I mean, it's, this is these these layer two solutions are really for either microtransactions or streamable payments in a lot of ways. I think that's right. Um, yeah, and I think that that's yeah. There is no one scaling solution. It's it's a it's a you know conglomeration of a bunch of different solutions used in various ways depending on what you need that payment to do. Yeah, I think that's something and I that think, yeah. Yeah, other people like that should be kind of driven home a little more. There is no like one stop shop for all financial use cases. We're able to yeah, create absolutely. different when, ways of sending money around and routing it based on how you're supposed to be interacting with that human on a financial level. That's right. And I think I think one example of this. Um, so one thing that payment channel networks in general um, and micropayments is the streaming streaming uh, packetized payments as well don't work for is non fungible tokens. Right. If I have a crypto kitty, there's no way for me to, to split this crypto kitty up into a, into a bunch of tiny pieces and send it to somebody piece, one piece at a time. Um, and also there's no way to have a payment channel network in a crypto kitty because a crypto kitty can only be in, could only be in one payment channel at, at a time. There's no, there's no liquidity there. There's no, there's no ability. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and disagree. Uh, I'm not going to disagree <laughs> for the, I am just saying that that's, that's, if you're using the base case as a crypto kitty, that is true, but mm-hmm. um, composable assets could take up many types of forms. Um, and some can have partial value. Um, and so uh, when you were looking more towards the future, and I do mean very far in the future here, 
Um, I could foresee things where uh, an entire group of assets is actually sold in a bundle, but they are received in piecemeal. And you can get partial delivery on those particular pieces of assets. Um, in which case, it would just be a simple case of saying the entire asset is the root of a Merkle tree. And I received this piece, this piece, this piece, and this piece. Uh, my signer also said that they sent this piece, this piece, this piece, and this piece, but this piece is missing. Uh, that could all be traced pretty, pretty, pretty straightforward in, in the form of a composable and decomposable asset. Um, but is that practical today? Fuck no, and I'm not really all that worried about it. Um, <laughs> sure. But I do see a future where uh, these kind of transactions don't just apply to um, currency and can and just you know floating point integers. They they could apply to actual um, actual uh, serialized assets that are stored in a blockchain That's or true. some other decentralized form. Yeah, and I think I think there's there's um, as a good point, although I mean, I, if, there's a, if there's a token that's only valuable if you have the entire, if there's only one of them, and it's only useful if you have the whole thing, um, like a like I don't know, like a like a particular concert ticket, um, it might be somewhat hard to to tokenize that, and certainly get a liquid a liquid network in it because because it's not worth anything unless you have the whole thing together. But I'm I'm not sure, but I digress there. Maybe maybe um, a better way to to say that um, that's that's yeah. more generally true is uh, you can only go down as far as what the atomicity of that asset allows for. For right. non-fungible yeah. tokens, yeah, the atomic, atomicity is the token. You can't break it down I would, any further. I would you maybe can... say divisibility because because we've used atomicity for the other things so often in this conversation. So I'd, probably, I'd say so divisibility or something like that. But I know exactly yeah. right, exactly what you're saying there, which is this, what are the sort of the fundamental yeah, atoms? How of far it. can you break um, it down? If you yeah. Can... So just right, saying right. NFT isn't 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 sufficient. Like you, you do That's have because I do point. believe there are the nature of NFTs does allow for more complex structures yep. than what we are so currently. I, yeah, I have somewhat of a more philosophical movement here. Um, and this is something that Colin usually uh, used to used to uh, kind of ask in a lot of our earlier shows, but we kind of got away from it. But for here, it seems it seems relatively appropriate. And that is um, these types of problems like HTLCs and why they may suck for these types of uh, payment channels or, or, or payment methods. And the difficulties we're having with uh, solving real scalable production level uh, there are two solutions for cross-chain payments. Do you see the future of kind of our, our blockchain future going more towards like a one chain to rule them all or having this um, wide network of, of disparate chains you know, communicating with each other? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think um, one thing I'd say is that, is that looking at right now, with a, when we're talking about cross-chain atomic transactions or a payment channel network that that's spans across multiple chains um we're thinking sort of multiple economic systems multiple you know uh these primitive blockchains like on bitcoin or ethereum or something like that but um in the future it's quite possible that one network um like ethereum might be actually composed of a bunch of different shards and i think you know if you want atomic transactions from one shard to another um there's ways to do that that are sort of inherent and built into sharding but I think doing it via these kind of these kind of cross uh, chain swaps of value can also be can often be really advantageous. And I think having um, this general this general concept of payment channels that sort of are anywhere where my money you know my money is in a in a payment channel on some chain or another. Um, I think it gives you a lot of freedom to change the architecture of just of layer one and say it's not necessarily just you know, one gigantic chain. Um, it can be a lot of different chains. It doesn't mean that they're not able to inter people aren't able to interact and send money to whoever they want to send money to. But I think that's um, that, 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 to, to the broader point. I think that is yes. That's the interledger vision is that um, you should be able to send money to somebody, um, and it doesn't matter if you were both are using the same medium or using the same currency. 
Um, that's that's just an implementation detail. And so, uh, you know, like like right now, it's it's kind of annoying that when I if I if I've got Square Cash and somebody else has Venmo, um, it's there's no way for me to just send Square Cash money to them that arrives in their account as Venmo um, dollars. Or you know, if, or if they're in Europe, you know, my, I want it to arrive as euros. It's it's relatively hard to have a to, to even even today to send payments in that way. Um, so yeah, so I, th- I think that's that's sort of what the, the potential that Interledger has is just abstract all this away, abstract away how I'm holding my money, how you're holding your money, and you can just tell me this is where I hold my money, this is how I hold it, this is what I want to receive, um, and then just like send it, and every all the intermediaries are, intermediaries in between do the work of trans translating what I have into what they want to receive. Um, so, so yeah, so uh, I, I I do I do think that that, that we will ultimately have, have some kind of multi-blockchain future, even if it's all under some homogenous system. Um, so yeah, so I think that that's important. So that that's the key phrase you put there at the end, and and so I'm gonna I have a soapbox, mm. goddammit, and I'm gonna use it. Um, <laughs> so I, I still I'm still in the one world blockchain. The, I, just the evolution of the world and the way it goes. I don't see us. We don't have multiple internets. You know what I mean? And what we're mm-hmm. creating is sort of a, a net of value. Um, we might have individualized like things, but there's one protocol which we all kind of adopted as our means of transferring packets of data around. And I see we're going to do this. I believe we're going to do the same thing with value. Um, and uh, I think it'll be very light and thin and nobody will have any problems uh, accepting it as the center of truth. Everything you're talking about to me sounds better suited for layer two in that. Yeah, okay, you can hold it in uh, your own ledger, which is very private and locked down and only certain people can see it and it's super encrypted and there's only one way you can get to it and that's because your company enables it or this particular government organization controls it. Um, But ultimately it inherits its truth value from one single source of truth. And I believe like just the way evolution of society works, we all eventually adopt a sort of lingua franca for trade. and I, I see uh, blockchain as being another, ty- or not just blockchain, just decentralized truth mechanisms as being sort of another language um, that is a language which computers speak between each other in order so they, so they could trust each other. And I believe we're going to build a Tower of Babel for that. And um, I think everything you're talking about, yes, there probably will be interchain protocols, but their routing mechanism will probably be some sort of main center of truth. Well, so I I think what you just described it is there's, there's there's right so there's one way that that, that it all works out that way and it, and it's because it's all on one root blockchain um, on which we all have consensus, but another is I think that the that you use the internet as an as an analogy and I think actually the interledger itself is a, is um, maybe more like that of sort of this one thing that everybody is using um, and what it does is it connects all of these different networks so the the internet connected a bunch of what were then heterogeneous computer networks um, using one protocol by which anyone could then uh, could send back and communicate with anyone else. Um, and I do think there's a possibility that people end up storing money in a bunch of different ways. And they, some of it could be in banks, some of it could be um, on blockchain, some of it could be on, on um, you know, faster blockchain, some of it could be more fully featured ones. Um, so I think I, I probably do disagree with you on that then there, because from a U.S. perspective, this would be like um, what Interledger gives you is essentially the ability to abstract away all those differences. Um, so it actually potentially gives 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 a lot more room for for difference and a room for diversity in in what the base layer is. Um, because ultimately, if I want to transact with you, I, if I'm using Interledger, I don't have to speak the same language as you. So thinking about it with another technological, uh, more fantastical analogy, if we all had universal translators, 
it's quite possible that the spread of English as the only language uh, might actually reverse, and people would um, because it would be there'd be much lower cost for people to, to communicate across languages. We might actually destroy that Tower of Babel and end up scattering, um, you know, the uh, to the winds and saying that. The, uh, you know, everyone can speak their own language because when they need to come together, we can use these translators and they can all talk to each other. That's a change. But, That's a change but, in the in the what, what you're considering base. Right. When you, when you start with a one blockchain to rule them all framework, you're considering the blockchain, the, 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 the ultimate base layer on what people agree on. And the multi blockchain uh, world. It's it, it's switched. It's the exchange protocol, which becomes more base than the actual uh, ledger itself. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Yeah. And it's I understand that perspective, but my, 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 when I look at what the world needs and what it really wants is it wants an Oracle of what is true and what is not true. Um, and when you break things up into different ledgers, you have to introduce an element of, I trust this ledger. And I don't think that the world really wants that. I think that we've desperately been searching for this one Oracle of truth. This, this is, this is where our information is recorded. This is where things are true. And when you do an exchange protocol, you have to believe that the other chain is adhering to a set of rules that you consider valid enough to do exchange. And that audit process is taxing and costly and unnecessary. And I believe you could cut all that out if we just had one root, root center of truth, which dictates all of this. And then everything you're talking about makes perfect sense to me, but as layer two. From a risk perspective, well, but, but, I think that's a that's a that's it's it's a it's a harsh way to move forward because you have to get that single source correct, and you can yeah, you can and, diversify and your risk appropriately. It. If you and can. I'm yeah, perfectly I'm, fine with that. Everybody and everybody has to agree on it. But I believe that that's a natural evolutionary process that we probably see in society, I'm, meaning that I'm people are sure, just going to yeah. see the benefits outweigh the cost of trying to determine whether or not you know the the pharma chain is is accurate. You know what I mean? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic on, on the general question, but I think, I definitely do think it could play out the other way because what you just said there about I need to actually verify what's, tr you know, if I'm doing exchange with somebody, I need to verify their ledger. That's not actually true. I mean, if, if I want to send money to somebody, I don't actually care about whether, from my view, from my point of view, they receive it. All I care about is whether they're happy, right? Whether they received what they wanted to receive. Um, and so it's a very subjective thing. If I'm doing business with somebody, I don't really care if we all agree on something. All I care about is agreeing on something with the person that I'm doing business with. Um, and I think this, you know, the economy really runs on this kind of, on this kind of local trust. Um, and the, the, the problem of sort of this, of global, of globally connecting these, these, these different pieces of local trust um, into something where, where we can, where we can uh, actually meaningfully transact with people who are, um, uh, who have different sources of truth from us? That's where these protocols become um, become very useful. So you know, I think I think that's uh, I, I see that being potentially where it works out. I think it's I think there's some analogies here to the internet, but that you know that, that could be a whole other discussion. I definitely encourage you if you haven't yet to have um, to have Evan Schwartz um, or Stefan Thomas on to talk more about the broader inner ledger vision. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I'm sure they could think a lot more about that. That would be I awesome. <laughs> and I just got to make one us. more point in that you know, the way people value things is becomes very subjective at that point too. And I think people don't like that either. And it's very, it doesn't help automation at all. You know, oh, values and values inherently subjective, not uh, necessary, not by, nece not by necessity. <laughs> that's what I believe is that I, I, I think that we are striving towards a more economic equilibrium. That's always been kind of like the Holy grail. And um, a lot of that is just in determining what the fuck is value.
Fair. Well, we could go balls deep into getting incredibly <laughs> philosophical right now, or we could wrap it up because it's been about an hour. Are there any questions that um, you hoped we would have asked you and we didn't? No, I mean, I think, I think we got to um, got to a lot of them. The one thing I want to I want to say because I want to be fair to the um, critics is um, that is, there's one other downside of the interledger approach that I forgot to mention, um, which is that uh, you can sometimes have payments partially complete. Um, so it's possible that I'm trying to send five dollars to somebody, and the liquidity dries up in the middle of this payment, and I only end up sending two dollars uh, fifty. And some people, a lot of lightning people, for some reason, this just really stresses them out. This possibility of a payment partially completing. Um, personally, I think it's, I think you know there's a lot of ways to fix that. You can you can um, find another path. You can refund it. You can just go settle on the main chain. But I also yeah. think you can have reliability you know, built on top of that. It's just the same What's way the internet works now. Like if you drop packets, yep. you have like the re reliability layer is built on top. That's right, and I think and I think if you have a liquid enough net network, especially because you know nobody's like griefing the whole thing with HDLCs, if you have a liquid enough network, it really shouldn't be a problem to um to either find a way to complete or, or refund that. But yes, but it is it is it is sort of a downside, and it does require I think really rearchitecting a lot of of how we think about these payments. So we're not trying to worship atomicity as this um as this false idol. All right, just like That's the way good. the internet works now, stream everything. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Stick around a little bit, and we'll we'll talk about potential guests uh, that we could probably, yeah, thanks probably for coming on, on the show. I appreciate but thank it. you and, for coming on. And uh, for okay. the guests who are still listening and still with us, thank you for joining us. If you liked this, please hit subscribe, hit the like button, share with your friends on Twitter. You can find me at at Corpetti on Twitter and Colin at at Colin Couchet, C O L L I N C U S C E. And Dan, what's your Twitter name? Oh, yeah, I'm at Dan Robinson on Twitter. There you go. Come to go say Dan and, and give him all your hate speech and uh, or tell him how much you love what he's doing. <laughs> no hate speech, guys. Come on. Come on. There's Corey. That's going to be your sound bite, dude. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That was great, man.